0: All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I have Dr. Rebecca Cliff. Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
0: Doing amazing. I have been talking about this interview for a while. I've been leaking it the last few weeks because I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, Dr. Cliff is the founder and executive director for the Sloth Conservation Foundation. And Dr. Cliff, I just, Rebecca, just really quick, I just have to tell people why. We are such a huge fan of yours before we get going. Angie and I, you know, we started this podcast a few years ago. It's just like we had an idea and and we've grown and we're doing really well. We have a, a very big circulation around the planet. And when we see somebody like you, and we're going to talk about your conservation foundation, but a few years ago, you're like, you know what? Sloths need help and I'm going to devote my life to protecting them and learning about them. And you started this foundation. I mean... Wow. Wow. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. It's just, uh, we're, we're giddy. We're giddy. So I, I guess first thing is, if you can just kind of tell our listeners your background, you know, kind of where you grew up, where you went to school.
1: Um, So I grew up in Manchester in um, the United Kingdom, and I went to university at the University of Manchester. So that's where I started to learn all about sloths for the first time.
0: And did you, so when you went to the university, because you obviously got your PhD, what uh, did you major in, like biology or ecology? So I st-
1: I started off with um, my undergraduate, undergraduate degree in zoology, um, and that was through Manchester. So that's when I started learning about sloths, because I did a 12-month research placement at a sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica. So that's where it's sort of the journey began 11 years ago, and then along the way, I started my PhD, which was technically in bioscience, um, but the title of my thesis was Life in the Slow Lane, so it was very much about sloths and sloth ecology and behaviour, and that was through Swansea University in Wales
0: awesome life in the slow lane are you kidding me that's awesome (laughs) that's amazing so 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 so, (laughs) i mean if anybody hasn't listened to our sloth episode they should go back and listen to that one but so you're saying sloths aren't very fast right
1: um yeah they're the slowest animal well the slowest mammal on planet earth by quite a long way um but you know if you make one angry then they can move surprisingly fast for about three seconds
0: yeah that i've you know i've i've been around sloths and under human care and that's what i've been told by the keepers is like sometimes they sneak up on you really quick when they want some food or something and, and you turn around and they're right there
1: exactly and you don't want to make us sloth mad because they've got big teeth
0: <laughs> big claws too but yeah that's for climbing um so you know doing your undergrad we have a lot of we have a lot of fans that are you know undergraduate students or even high school students wanting to get involved uh, in animal conservation and conservation research so can you talk a little bit about your journey uh, you know as an undergrad like I guess how you got involved with the sloth uh, organization down in Costa Rica and and then I guess leading up to graduate school
1: yeah so when I was at university um, doing my undergraduate I was studying zoology as I mentioned and I'd always had this interest in like the rainforest and tropical biology. I think a lot of people out there can relate to that. Especially being from the UK, um, sort of the rainforest was just like my dream to go there. I'd watched all the David Attenborough shows, you know, and um, I had this fascination. And then it was the research placement opportunity when I um, had to go somewhere in the world and spend 12 months just studying something. And Um, The reason I ended up with sloths in particular is because I had a supervisor at my university who was friends with a lady in Costa Rica who owned a sloth sanctuary. And this particular lady needed help because she was rescuing sloths, a lot of them. And she didn't know how to successfully get those animals back into the wild because As it turns out, nothing is known about how swaths live in the rainforest. Um, And I thought that was a bit bit crazy that you've got this mammal, which is so unique and so extraordinary, and yet very little is known about them. And they've sort of um, evaded scientists for a very long time. And so I applied for the job because I thought that would be, I mean, a really amazing opportunity. Um, And... I was so determined to get the position that I studied day and night everything I could find about sloths. I read it. Um, I over prepared so much and I turned up to the interview about an hour early just to make sure I'd get there on time. Um, And it turned out all my hard work paid off um, and the person who'd seen me turn up an hour early was the interviewer and they knew I was so passionate and dedicated to wanting this dream to happen. So, I did. I got the position and I, I jetted off for Costa Rica two weeks later and the rest was history, but it really was, it was just that hard work. Like if you, if you put your mind towards wanting something and wanting to make something happen, then you can. And that has stuck with me throughout the last 11 years because it's not always been easy. And it, it, there's been times when I've had mm-hmm. to think, like, how on earth am I going to make this happen? It seems impossible, but there's always a way. And it was like that from the very beginning. The stars aligned, and I just had to put in the work to make it happen. Um, so, yeah, I went off for that first 12 months. And honestly, sloths just took over my life. Like, the first time I saw one, I can remember I just burst out laughing. I didn't know what to do because <laughs> they're, they're so odd. They're such yeah. strange animals. Um, and, yeah, like it's just spiraled out of control since then because when I – I started to learn things about them through science. And these were things that no one knew before. And so it was very easy to find out um, amazing things that were really making a difference to sort of their conservation and their rehabilitation as well. And that was very fulfilling as a young scientist, being able to see that what I was doing was actually making a difference. Um, So I accidentally became an expert in sloths. I had no intention of that, but it, yeah, has... Has become what it is today.
0: <laughs> it's life. The, the one thing I've learned is in life, you just let the journey unfold before you, right? Like, I never thought I would be doing podcasting. You know, I always thought I'd be a professor teaching classes <laughs> all the time. And, and life has taken me in, in different directions, you know, to, to Europe, to New Zealand, around the world. So, yeah. So, that, that's an awesome story, you know, for, for any of our listeners uh, that, that want to get involved. You know, we, we hear from them. Now, can I ask you, you know, so you're in Costa Rica now, right?
1: Yes, I'm talking to you from the jungle.
0: Yeah, so I wanted wanted our listeners to know that. So you are there where you're doing your research. Um, So could you just talk a little bit about what your PhD was about, you know, what you studied and what you found?
1: Yeah so when um I did the PhD my focus was on wild sloths. I wanted to know what it is that they were doing out there in the jungle because the thing with sloths is that they are they're masters of invisibility. They're like just just amazing when they go up into the tops of trees. You you cannot see them unless they decide to move. Um they really do just blend in seamlessly with with the rainforest. So historically scientists have struggled to do observational research on them because you just can't see what's going on. So this is where people thought that they just slept all day um, and that there was nothing really to know about them. And it turns out that's completely wrong. Um, They don't sleep all day at all. They're just moving so slowly uh, that they've gone unnoticed for hundreds of years. So I wanted to really understand what was happening and I knew I couldn't just use my eyes to do that. Um, So I worked with a professor from Swansea University who um, creates micro data loggers for animals. And the reason he first invented these was for penguins, because when a penguin goes under the water, you can't see what it's doing. So you need something that's going to record behavior for you. So he invented this thing called a daily diary um, and you just attach it to an animal and it records all of their behaviors. And we decided to try and use that same technology on a sloth, um, which was challenging. <laughs> we thought it would be really yeah. easy because it's a sloth. But as it always turns out, sloths are far more complicated than you think, Um And so, yeah, I spent six years collecting data for the PhD, um, which is a very long time. That was full time living in the jungle, following sloths around all day, every day, learning as much as I could about them. And the reason it took so long is um, I don't know how much people know about sloths, but it takes one sloth 30 days to digest one leaf. So that really is how slow things happen. And so to properly understand what one individual animal is doing, you have to really follow them for a long time. So I was investing years in individual sloths trying to properly understand their lives and why they were doing what they were doing. And yeah, so six years of data accumulated in a PhD, which um, we looked at a lot of different things in the end um, to do with their diet and how they get energy from their diet and how that relates to the environment that they're living in. Um, And then how, because they're getting so few calories from this diet, how do they survive um, with such little energy? And how are they not getting eaten by predators? Um, So we looked at all of that stuff, their metabolic rate, all sorts, Um, and yeah. And then we also looked at their behavior and, and how that's impacted by the environments that they're living in. So um, how much time are they spending climbing and how much time are they asleep? How much time are they interacting with each other? And um, What are their habitat requirements? All of these really fun things. Um, so it was a lot of stuff. It was a really big thesis in the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're living the dream. I mean, you're absolutely living the dream. That is amazing. That's amazing. <laughs>
1: Thank you. It was a lot of, a lot of days, a lot of hours spent in the jungle following sloths around.
0: Yeah, I imagine. So I guess we could just throw this up here. What is it with the, the, with the fungus, the, the biome that they have within their fur?
1: Um, so sloths, yeah, a lot of people think that they move so slowly that they are moldy. That's like a really common myth that I see portrayed everywhere. Um, They're not moldy at all. That just sounds disgusting, doesn't it? They have over 70 different species of fungi and algae that grow in their hair. And a lot of these species don't grow anywhere else on planet Earth, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. They are unique to sloths. Um, and some of those species of fungi and algae have also been found to be active against things like breast cancer, malaria, they're antibacterial. So there's a lot of medicinal properties to the fungi that grows in sloth fur. There. Um, there's a lot of different hypotheses as well Uh, about why they have this stuff in their hair. Um, But what we do know is that it turns them green. And if you're a sloth and you don't want to get eaten by a jaguar or a harpy eagle in the rainforest, it really helps if you're green because you blend in perfectly with the rainforest. So it's an excellent form of camouflage. And I can attest to that after having searched for sloths for the last 11 years and struggled to see them. So...
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can could, I could only imagine how hard it is to spot them. And, you know, you just have to have that trained eye, I guess, just to, to look for it. Now, what species are you, are you tracking or working with there in, in Costa Rica?
1: Um, we have two species here in Costa Rica. We have the brown-throated sloth and the Hoffmans, two-fingered sloth. Um, so there's six species in total, but those are the two that we work with. Um, and unfortunately, they are listed as least concern, which is incredibly misleading in terms of their conservation status. Um, but yeah, that's what we've got.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I was going to ask you that later down the line, but we might as well just jump into it now. You, you know, I, I, I think I remember from the, the podcast that the, we just don't have good census data, right? And we know... The rainforests are being cut down the fires in brazil i mean south america leading up into central america so there's a lot of pressures right so so i guess i you know like again i saved this for later in the interview but let's address it now how are sloths doing in the wild
1: um it's an interesting question and again there's very little scientific data to back it up and it is something that we're working towards better understanding through research at the moment um, because as you said, there is no official population census for sloths and the population trends are listed as unknown. We just don't know what's going on. And again, this goes back to them being masters of invisibility because you can't do a population count on an animal if you can't see it. So if you're walking transects in the jungle, you're going to miss about 70 percent of the sloths that are there just because they're so so well hidden. Um, So what we do know is that sloths should make up about 50% of the mammalian biomass in any section of rainforest. So um, what that means is there should be absolutely loads of sloths. That's how they survive. That's how they avoid inbreeding. Um, And what we are seeing is sloths arriving at rescue facilities at numbers of about three to four animals a day so they are not doing well at all and they they have now been recognized as a conservation Mm -hmm. concern in costa rica but again there's no scientific data to really change the population um, conservation status at the moment so we are working towards it because i am very very confident that sloth numbers are falling rapidly Um, And it's just going unrecorded at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's a lot of species, I think, that's happening too. Because it's happening so rapidly, right? Like, we're seeing the destruction of of our environments. I mean, this year has just been insane. Uh, You know, last year we were talking about Brazil on fire. uh, Central America and Brazil. Again, this year, fires. Uh, Australia burnt down. I mean, just all this stuff's happening so quickly. So... Is it from your opinion, you know you 've been doing this for ten years that it's just hard to I mean I know we don't have the funding, but it's hard to keep up with everything that's happening so rapidly right I guess if you get my train of thought
1: yeah it's it's really honestly it 's quite depressing <laughs> I'll try not to be too depressing about this, but it's yeah, yeah. just the rapid and the rampant destruction of the rainforest humans, the population's increasing. And as we increase, as there's more people, we're putting more and more pressure on the remaining wild spaces. And that is sort of of unavoidable, that everybody wants a piece of land. Everybody wants a house. Everyone wants something that is their own. And as there's more people, then we need more space for that. And um, what we're seeing here in Costa Rica is it's not like mass logging, on a, a crazy scale there's no huge areas of deforestation but it is this sort of encroachment into the sloth's habitat on a on a daily basis it's people with private properties that they've owned and suddenly they're starting to develop them suddenly they want to build a house or a holiday rental or they want to make a farm or And they're just chopping down the trees on their personal property. So there's that sort of like a diffusion of responsibility because everybody is like, oh, I only chopped one or two trees. But then when you add all of that up, then you've got this catastrophic effect on animals like sloths who really don't do well with habitat disturbance. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later. But honestly, it's it's, the whole systems needs rebuilding because right now a tree for a Costa Rican person, is worth more dead than it is alive. Mm -hmm. And when they're struggling financially to generate an income for themselves, then to be able to cut down a tree on a piece of land and sell it as timber, and then the price of their land increases because development companies will pay more money for a cleared piece of land, then as long as this um, financial incentive is Mm -hmm. there to cut down the trees, I think we're really going to struggle to conserve the remaining rainforest. Um, So it's this small individual um, contributions to deforestation, which is, is, I think, personally, a huge, huge problem for sloths and one that we are working very hard to try and prevent.
0: Uh, It's... And and it's happening in Costa Rica of, you know, for those of us that, that don't live there or, you know, have traveled there maybe on vacation, but Costa Rica is supposed to be really eco-friendly, right? So if you're seeing it there, do you know how in other countries in Central and South America, how they're doing? Is it worse or is it probably the same? So
1: it's difficult to fully understand. Um, I can speak obviously... Mostly about Costa Rica, because this is where I have my 11 years of experience. Um, I do know Costa Rica has got this amazing green reputation, and it is well-deserved. Because what happened is actually in the sort of 1980s, Costa Rica cut down all of its forests. They removed, I think it was up to about 70% of -hmm. forest, and it was all converted into pasture. And then they realized the horrible mistake they'd made and the government started to pay farmers to regrow the forest on their lands. So they reversed deforestation, which they were only the one of the only countries in the world who's managed to do that. So they've got this incredible green reputation, but what's happening now is that while forests are being replanted in some areas, the old forests are still being cut down and that's what we're seeing. Um, And, I mean, I sit here in the jungle right now and I can hear in the distance, I can hear chainsaws every single day. I wake up to the sounds of chainsaws. Oh. We hear trees being felled. And it's really it's really difficult to stay positive about it when those trees are 100, 200 years old. And we plant trees every single day for sloths, but these trees aren't going to grow to that size for a very long time. Um, so it is about working with communities and with people you can't work against people and fight it um, but in other countries i know uh, brazil for example does have slightly different issues um, because they do have the fires we don't have fires here in costa rica yet thankfully um, and then countries like colombia the the sloth conservation problems are much more focused around poaching for the pet trade Um, which doesn't really happen as much in Costa Rica. So it's different problems in different areas.
0: I I just, uh, you hearing chainsaws each day, knowing trees are being felled, I just, I I can't imagine how frustrating that is. (laughs) I mean, to me, I get a little bit angry. Like you're fighting to save these animals and they're just ripping up their habitat. That's just, that's horrible. Oh, I
1: know, and the worst thing (laughs) is that... Can you just call- when they when they oh sorry I talked over you. Um, the worst thing is when they do this when when the trees are being cut and the trees are being felled, the howler monkeys are screaming. They start shouting because they can hear the destruction of their habitat. They're responding to the noise of the trees being cut down, and you can hear the animals being afraid of it. They're scared of it, and it's just really heartbreaking. I feel, I find myself apologizing to mother nature every day. Like, I'm sorry, this is still happening.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And in, in the news this year on top of COVID and everything else, it's just, it it's, it's dire. And, you know, we always preach, this is the, the, determ- you know, the, this decade will determine what happens in the next few hundred years for wildlife and, and us as a species. So, you know, that's why we're fighting each day and, and, put, you know, giving light to heroes like yourself that are fighting for these animals. How has, I guess, here's a different question, because I really want to talk about your foundation too, but it's interesting listening to you talk. How has COVID affected, not sloth so much, but how about ecotourism in Costa Rica? Is that having an impact on their economy there? Um, you know, I'm just interested um, because I hear parts of Africa are really suffering Uh, with no tourists how's it there
1: it is an unprecedented disaster actually um costa rica gets a huge proportion of its income from tourism um and since covid happened they actually closed their borders to international visitors in april and they only reopened them last month so For that period, they had no tourism at all. And so a huge proportion of the country lost all of their income. All of the small businesses closed down. People were losing jobs everywhere. Um, And for facilities like rescue centres, this is a huge problem um, in particular because they rely almost 100% on ecotourism to fund the rescue work. Now, since the borders closed, they weren't getting any tourists coming in, but they are still getting three to four sloths per day sometimes arriving, needing medical care, needing food and treatment. Mm. And they've got nothing to cover those costs. They don't have any volunteers coming in to help them either. So it's been a really, really big problem. And I know the majority of the rescue centers in Costa Rica are now hosting emergency fundraisers just to keep their doors open and to keep helping the wildlife um so it's had a, a huge impact um and they don't expect t- tourism to properly come back until 2022 so it's a sort of a prolonged struggle i think
0: yeah i mean it's 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 2022 i hear you know it's just it's and even then it's going to be years uh until things kind of get back to normal it's just uh it's heartbreaking but at the end of this uh we're going to give links and and let you tell where people can go to help to help sloths and, and these, uh, these centers. So I, I want to talk about your foundation because fascinating, you know, reading the website, beautiful website, uh, when I was researching your organization and I, I read about your bio. So can you just talk a little bit about how you went about founding the sloth conservation foundation? And I guess a little bit about why.
1: So... For as long as I remember, um, I've wanted to help animals. Um, And I was always confident as a scientist that whatever I was researching or whatever I was discovering, I didn't want it to just benefit science. I wanted it to benefit science and benefit the animals that I was studying. So as I was collecting all this information on sloths and learning about them and properly understanding what it is that they need to survive. Um, as I graduated with my PhD, sort of, it was like, well, what's next? Do I go on to do a post degree or um, what am I going to do? And there were, I mean, there was really no question. I knew, I've known for a very long time deep down that what I want to do is give back to the sloths and, so, and use that knowledge that I've gained to really help them. So... The next step was it was just logical. Well, I need to create an organization which is going to allow me to do that. Um, and I knew I didn't want to be a rescue center or anything like that. So I started a charity um, and this was done in 2017. Um, we got the official registration. Um, and at the beginning, it was just me and I I did it all voluntary um, because I'm very passionate about putting as much of every single donation into the actual projects as, as possible. So I'd do it alongside um, working several other jobs. And I did that up until actually about 12 months ago. Um, and then now I'm employed by the foundation full time. So we're able to really move things forward, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, it, ju- it just happened. It was the logical next step.
0: Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we uh, just a few months ago, I interviewed Julian Fennessy with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. And, you know, he was a, a co-founder, co-director, I believe with his wife. At the, um, and they started that one. And because there, there's nothing out there, right? There's, there's no other organization that's really focused just on sloths. So for you to go and no, say, okay, so- there's a need, and I'm going to do it. That is amazing
1: thank you there's um there's some like there's rescue centers that are focused on sloths but and they're really important but the problem is once you start rescuing animals, then your resources and your time get sucked up very very quickly in in helping individual animals and getting them back in the wild, which is I do think very important, but the problem is it doesn't leave anything left over to actually solve the problems that are happening in the first place it's sort of like putting a band-aid on a problem um and so yeah I was very very adamant right from the beginning that I'm going to go in as an organization um and we I do believe we are the only one in the world who are doing this and just focusing on protecting sloths in the wild so doing the conservation side of things um so yeah um not much sloth time for me unfortunately it's all um humans and computer work but <laughs> that's what conservation is
0: yes right right so my yeah my next question was you know how do you find the time or or how do you run this foundation i mean isn't it i do you sleep i mean how how does it go
1: <laughs> i sleep minimally um <laughs> well as i mentioned for the first 2 years because we are a relatively young nonprofit um for the first two years, I worked several jobs and I ran the foundation in, in as as best as I could in, in the spare time I had between. Um, and as of about twelve months ago, I employed myself and I employed one other person at the same time. And together we really began building Sloco. And how much we've progressed in the last 12 months has blown me away we're now a team of seven people. And I'm so lucky to have them on my team. And we're like a family, we all are so passionate about what we do, that we do work hard every single day. And it doesn't feel like hard work, because we see the results of what we're doing, we can feel um, the success. And that sort of powers us on. That's our motivation. And yeah, it doesn't feel like hard work. We just feel like we're all doing something that we love and we're making a difference. So yeah, now it's just fueling itself and I'm I'm just so pleased with how everything's going.
0: Uh, it's 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 amazing and, and I agree with you. Like when you're doing your passion, it doesn't feel like work, right? Like it just does not <laughs> feel like when you when you put in an 18 hour day doing what you do. It's just so rewarding because, you know, these animals, you're fighting for these animals. You're you're a huge voice for these animals. So thank you for what you do. That's, that's just, it's amazing work.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> now, the team, you mentioned this team that you formed in such a short time. How did you find all these people? I mean, it is amazing. what's it seven? Is that what you said? I, I looked at, at the team on the website. I'm like, oh my goodness, in such a short time. And you have all these experts, you know, helping you with digital communications, all these other things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's seven of us um, that are paid staff members. And then we have some people who are just amazing um, individuals who are volunteering their skills and their time for us, which we're very lucky to have. Um, But it's, it's this strange thing of being here in the jungle in this little community. And I meet people who are passionate about wildlife and nature here and they might not have master's degrees or amazing um, skill sets or anything but they have a passion and a willingness to learn and um, that is actually better than um, having a lot of credentials for me personally because they go about what they do with such sort of um, such passion and energy and the results speak for themselves because the thing with sloths is if you you can think you know loads of stuff about them but we have to remember we really know nothing even today we still really know nothing about them so it's all about watching and learning and using your instincts and having people skills communication skills being able to go out into communities and talk to local people and really understand the problems from their perspective rather than from our perspective and Um, Yeah, these skills are are something that all of my team have, and, and I'm so lucky to have them. But I just stumbled across yeah. them, <laughs> found them in the jungle. <laughs> that's funny
0: now do you are you, do you accept volunteers because uh me and Angie might come down there, or <laughs> but I know we we do have uh, a lot of undergraduate students or even graduate students that are looking for projects.
1: We do accept some volunteers in certain situations, so if it's a research student, for example, who would be willing to come down, want to do a um a research project with us, then we would be interested in that. Um, But we really look for people who are able to come long term because sort of learning the skills and um, learning enough about sloths to really sort of do a good job does take time. So we do look for people who can put in sort of a prolonged stint in the jungle. Um, But we are always open to that. And anyone who has skills or would like to just get involved remotely to begin with and then maybe come down at a later date, then that sort of stuff we're really open to. So. Yeah, but anyone who just wants to drop us an email and and let us know what their thoughts are and what they'd like to get involved in, then we are always happy to to hear from people.
0: Oh, that's amazing, thank you. Because I know we, you know, we all the time we get students emailing us, uh, how do they get involved? What can they do? Uh, have had students change majors because of you know listening to these stories. So yeah, so important for for them and and their growth and and learning and then helping because. That's where we all began, right? We all were undergrads at some point or high school students wanting to get involved. Can I ask, what are some of the research projects you're conducting, like right now?
1: Um, so one of our most recent ones that we've just started, and um, I'm quite excited about this one, is we want to quantify how habitat disturbance and, and humans are really impacting the sloth's behavior and their sort of their ecological requirements so what we're doing it's a five-year project so it's quite ambitious but we are um tagging sloths with something called sloth backpacks which sounds bizarre they are quite bizarre actually um they're little we print them on a 3d printer um and they have little data loggers inside and tracking devices and then i hand sew sloth harnesses um that go sort of around the shoulders And the sloths wear these little backpacks. And they're only tiny, um, so they really don't bother them. But the data logger inside records exactly what they're doing, 24 hours a day. Um, And they're so detailed. We can see every time the sloth breathes, every time the sloth chews, we can really record exactly what's going on. And we put these backpacks on sloths that are living in heavily disturbed areas, like sloths living in towns and cities and then we compare that to sloths living in pristine um, primary forest habitats um, and compare what is happening um, for, in terms of like how active are the sloths? How far are they having to travel to search for food? Um, which for a sloth, I mean, might not seem a problem if they have to move a bit further to get to a different tree. But sloths exist on what, what I like to call an energetic knife edge. So they just about get enough energy from the leaves they're eating to fuel their metabolism and move where they need to move to get their resources. If suddenly they're having to move a lot further to find food, then this impacts them quite um, a lot energetically. So um, and then we compare like how much time are they having to spend moving on the ground as opposed to up in the canopy where they should be. Um, All these different things um, and it's really going to help us to develop our our conservation strategies to be um, as effective as as they possibly can be. And then we also have a project um, that we're looking at the population census. So as I mentioned, we don't know how many sloths there are and we don't know the population trends. Um, And the only way we're ever going to know this is if somebody starts doing population counts on a regular basis. So we are starting that. um, But as I mentioned, you can't just Look for sloths, you have to use something else. And what we've decided to use is a scat detection dog who will walk the, the transects with us and will hopefully be able to find sloth poop for us. Because I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know this already, but sloths will only poop on the ground. Um, and so we can yes. utilize that because you can train a dog to tell, um, to distinguish poop. From different individual sloths so he the dog will be able to tell us how many sloths are living in a certain area based on how many different piles piles of sloth poop we find so it's a it's an it's an interesting and a novel way to do a population count on an animal like a sloth and it's going to be a very very long project but that's one that we're really excited to get off the ground as well
0: oh that that one yeah that one sounds that one sounds fascinating i um So when we talked about that, maybe you can, you can help us out a little bit. So they poop about once a week and it's about, I don't remember a third of their body weight or whatever we were, you know, from what we, the research we could find, is it something about having to do with like, you know, hormone signaling, you know, they always poop in the same spot. It's kind of a territorial thing. I mean, what's the main reason why they, they actually descend down, spend all that energy to poop and they get back up in the trees.
1: I'm so happy you said that. Um, (laughs) Because there's so many different theories about this because they do risk their lives to do this. They climb all the way down. They waste a load of energy. They sit on the ground, really vulnerable um, for about 10 minutes while they poop. And then they climb back up the tree. Why? They're also wasting energy carrying all that poop around because it, it can weigh up to 30% of their body weight. Um, and so it's got to be a really important reason. And I did come up with the idea about probably about 10 years ago now um, that it's to do with reproduction, that it's got to have something to do with finding a mate. This is pretty much one of the only things an animal will risk its life for um, like that. So we, yes, I, I did start so a project yes. looking into this um, and... What we found was that when a female sloth is in estrus, which is about once a month, she will come down to the ground every single day and do a little, little poop at the bottom of a tree and go back up again. And she'll stay in that tree for about a week doing that. And the male sloths will come and they'll find where she pooped. They'll poop where she pooped. It's really weird. And then go up into the tree and mate with her. Um, And so... Just watching this happen and seeing it, and seeing the response of sloths to other piles of sloth poop and watching it all unfold, it was clear that there are there are um chemical messages being transmitted via the poop, and the fact that the female is doing it every single day when she's sexually receptive um really told me personally that it is definitely um to do with pheromones and reproduction and finding a mate. The problem with proving it scientifically is that we need to prove that that sloth is in estrus when she's doing it. And doing that for a sloth is incredibly invasive and not very nice. Um, It involves taking a lot of samples every single day. And it's just something that I'm personally not willing to do just for the sake of of proving that. Um, I'm sure somebody will find a less invasive way to do it one day, Um, but at the moment, I just, I'm, I'm satisfied with with sort of what I've learned so far. And I'm just going to leave it with that um, until, yeah, an, a different way to to prove what's happening comes around.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the animal protection and, and safety is like paramount, but fascinating. Thank you. That's what we thought. And I think even in the episode, we went back and forth about it that we, because we're both reproductive physiologists, you know, our backgrounds. And so we thought it had to be, it just had to be something with repro, make animals risk their lives. Like it just made no sense. So um, next question, what's a typical day f- for you in the field look like? Like what do you do and 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 how does that go about? How do you go about your daily business?
1: Oh, my days are so unpredictable and so varied. Um, I wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to get a good day on the computer. I'll be answering emails and, um, sort of handling all the content that we put out. And I end up running around the jungle, like ai have had my head cut off, chasing sloths. Um, I never know what's going to happen, but I'd say cause a lot of my work while in the past, it used to be with sloths, very hands-on, very following them every day, collecting data, learning about them, analyzing that data. And sadly I don't get to do as much of that anymore. Um, I did really, I, I really enjoyed it. But now I do see that wildlife conservation is actually much less about having time with the animals. It's it's more about community engagement, working with people and um, raising money. But we've got to raise money where we can't do any of our projects. Mm. So I actually spend the majority of my time um, at my desk. I'm... Finding ways to fundraise. I'm coordinating collaborations. I'm coordinating staff and projects, and um, writing out information that we need. Um, all just sort of admin stuff. Doing the accounts for the charity. Um, all these things. And so it's not not very exciting. It's not really what people want to hear. Um, <laughs> but then with the projects, I do try and get out in the yeah. field at least once a week um, to do the sloth tracking and to keep. Um, just sort of in touch with that side of our work because that's sort of what all the staff do now and, and what the rest of my team do. Um, but I do try and yeah, dedicate one day a week to being out in the field with people working on the projects, which is really nice as well. Um, but yeah, and then other days I end up just running around um, in the community because we get a lot of people who call us for sloth advice. Like um, two days ago, for example, a, a mother and baby sloth fell out of a tree and um, landed on a bee's nest and they were being attacked by bees. And somebody called us, like asking us to help. So we ran over there and 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 tried to um, tried to sort it out. The, the, the mum and baby sloth were fine in the end, thankfully. Um, but just things like that. Like we're not a rescue centre, but we will always help people out if they do have a sloth problem on their property. Um, we will always go and show up and try and try and make sure the sloth's okay. Um, and if necessary, take it to a local rescue center if it needs that as well. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's, it's like uh, you get out once a week to like keep your sanity, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really sad. No, no,
0: but, no. Yeah, it's it's so true. But it is. It's, it's one thing I've learned th- these last few years doing this and, and speaking to, to so many organizations like the one you run it's complex. Conservation super complex. It's not just about, okay, we're going to put a fence around this area and preserve it. Right. I mean, it is, you work with the government, the local communities. I mean, I guess you talk about some of that complexity.
1: Yeah. It's, it's about people uh, because one thing is you can't, I mean, I'm, I'm from Manchester in England. I can't come into a community here in Costa Rica and start saying, do this, do that, you shouldn't do this, um, that's wrong, how dare you cut down your trees, it's just not right, it's not appropriate at all. What we have to do is is look at the people and look at their problems. Why do they want to cut down that tree? What is the benefit to them of doing it? Um, and then try and work out an alternative solution for that problem so um it is it's about politics and and juggling people and keeping people happy building trust with local people is very very important because historically there there have been a lot of conservationists or activists who've come in and made them feel very bad and very guilty and um sort of judged people in communities like the one where we are um and almost attacked them and so there's also quite a a, a, not a fear, but um, people are quite guarded about conservationists in general. We've got a bit of a bad rep. Um, so we do try and build trust and let them know that we're not there to scold them or get them in trouble or anything. We just want to work with them to empower them and help them. Like if if you can help people to generate an alternative income that doesn't involve damaging um. Or using utilizing the natural resources in an unsustainable way, then they don't need to cut down the trees or exploit the animals. they don't want to do that anyway. they're doing it out of necessity um so it is very very complex it's it's political. I wish I had a degree in politics um I'm sure it would benefit me greatly
0: yeah <laughs> it's and and it's it's so interesting listening to you talk about that because that we're seeing that around the planet. I mean, research study after research study. I uh, just talked about one. I think we when we covered mandrels a few weeks ago. I talked about a study out of Gabon, uh, getting the, the locals engaged in conservation, getting their buy-in. Um, Nepal is notorious for this, or not notorious. It's a bad word. They're doing a spectacular job getting the locals involved, and that's awesome that that you're doing that with the sloths there in Costa Rica.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we um we do something called we have the Connected Gardens Project and the Sloth Friendly Network, which are probably two of our um biggest, most successful projects because what these do is we work with people um in the community who own land. It doesn't matter if they're a huge hotel chain or whether they are just a local guy with his wife and his three kids, it doesn't matter. We'll come in and talk to them and if they've got a garden or a property, we will ask them if they'd be willing to have some trees planted there. Um, and we can make it fruit trees that they that will provide food for the family. Or we can make it trees that are really attractive for wildlife that will bring nature into the garden. Um, and we'll plant those for people for free. And um, we build wildlife bridges on private properties um, because the dream is to 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 create an environment where humans and sloths can coexist peacefully, side by side. That is the only sustainable solution in the future. And so through this Connected Gardens project, the idea is that we can make sure that every single private property in a given area is connected to the one next door. And so animals like sloths and primates um, can safely navigate through urban areas. They have a connected network that they can move through and that avoids all the problems like the power lines and the dogs and the cars and the people because they're safely up off the ground where they need to be. Um, And if somebody agrees to do that with us, if they agree to have trees or a wildlife bridge, then what we'll do is then reward them with accreditation and um, that through that accreditation program we can direct more tourists their way. And those tourists will pay more because they are giving money to a business that is sloth-friendly, that has made sure that they want to preserve um, wildlife as well. So it's a double-win situation because the people are gaining through having more wildlife on their land. They're gaining through increased income. The sloths are gaining because they're gaining increased habitat connectivity. Um, And it really is being incredibly well received by the local community as well so um, I'm super excited for the potential that one has in the future
0: that's that's awesome that, that's just uh, it warms my heart to hear that things like that are going on out there that that's amazing now you do have a director of education and outreach so is she doing a lot of um, not just local I guess local in Costa Rica but are you doing any global work you know global awareness and uh, education?
1: yeah so um we do um education obviously in the local communities that was our first project um and we work closely with indigenous communities in particular to um, make sure that they the sort of the education programs reach to the to the um, sort of more remote areas but as of 2020 uh, the year when everything became virtual Uh, we did start a virtual online sloth school and it has been so well received that we're going to continue doing this in the future. Um, And it involves basically any group of children anywhere in the world, whether it's a school or a group of Girl Scouts, it really doesn't matter. Um, They can just book in with our sloth school and they can Skype with somebody here in Costa Rica and have a lesson on sloths live from the jungle um, for free because I think education is so powerful, um, particularly for the next generation, because they're the ones who are going to grow up and hopefully reverse the damage that has been done to the environment. So, yeah, we try and educate as many people around the world as possible. And then this also relates with tourism as well, because we get a lot of tourists coming to countries like Costa Rica um, and wanting to interact inappropriately with animals like sloths so there's the whole sloth selfie problem which is honestly the most disgusting thing um and the way to stop that from happening is to educate people on on the fact that it's not okay to touch or hold a sloth under any circumstance anywhere ever don't touch and hold sloths and so we do a whole load of education on that side of things via zoos as well. So educating guests who go into zoos about these issues, um, and then when they do come to Costa Rica or Colombia, um, and they get offered the opportunity to hold a sloth, they know to say no. They they they're, they're well educated in those issues. So
0: did did I happen to mention this is like. One of my favorite organizations now, like by far. It's, you have Sloth School? That is awesome. That is awesome. So I just want to say to all the listeners out there, if, if for your kids, and, and we do have you know, young kids listening to this program too, make sure you go to your school and request the, sl- the virtual Sloth School. You can learn <laughs> about Sloths and then make sure mommy and daddy go online. Or you know if you're listening, go online and donate 5, 10, whatever you can to help these animals out because that is awesome that is that is amazing work for an organization that's been around three four years so so bravo bravo
1: thank you so much yeah um slot school is the most chilled out school (laughs) you could possibly go to so um, i highly recommend it
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's just uh, after zootopia the movie it's just uh slots are just so amazing Uh, a few more questions because i i don't want to tie up your day but I guess from your point of view and, and what you're seeing there in Central America and, and from your studies, from your opinion, what is the greatest threat to biodiversity across the planet today?
1: It is um, the unsustainable use of resources, <laughs> to put it really simply. It is this consumption of of the natural world. And I mean, it. it it's a, it's complex. It's very hard to summarize, but it really is right back to what I said earlier about the value of a tree. We have put a price tag on the rainforest. It is available to buy to the highest bidder. Anyone can come in and buy a slice of forested land and do whatever they want to it. And right now, it's an easy way to make money is to come in and buy forest, cut it down, sell it as timber, build a holiday rental on it and Happy days, but that is unsustainable. That is something that we cannot continue to do moving forwards. Um, and to just say, okay, halt all deforestation, is that is that even an answer? Is that ever going to happen? Because I don't ever see that happening, not in, in the way that the current system works. So it's about unsustainable resource use. Um, and I know that example only pertains to slots, but. Um, it can be expanded to sort of overfishing in the oceans and um, sort of the production of beef and, and the deforestation that's happening in Brazil because of that. It It's about, I think if we want, want to, as you mentioned earlier, the next decade is absolutely critical for um, sort of restoring the balance of our planet. And if we do want to make that happen, I personally believe it is every single one of us has to change the way we live quite substantially Um, because I I think a, a lot of times like the responsibility gets diffused amongst people it's very easy to like blame governments or blame people in power or or just sort of shift the responsibility to make change onto other people but we all have to look at ourselves and think how often do I eat meat how often do I eat fish how How much plastic do I recycle and use and and sort of just changing our our day-to-day lives? and It'll be quite a substantial change, but I do definitely think it's possible.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, at least (laughs) we're getting the press about it and people are becoming more and more aware of it around the planet. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of positive movement, but there needs to be more. I mean, it it, it can be a little bit, you know, too little too late uh, in some instances. So we need to keep pushing. Uh, just a couple more questions. This one I, I ask of all my guests uh, harkens back to my my professor days. You know, arguing that animal conservation is important with some other professors. You know, from your standpoint, spending the money uh, you spend day after day out there in the jungles in in the rainforest of Costa Rica. Do we as humans have a moral obligation to preserve sloths? these other species that we share this planet with?
1: Um, I do think we have a moral obligation. And I I think it goes further than just preserving the sloths and, and the other species. I think it's about preserving ourselves and preserving humanity because we can't exist as a species without biodiversity. We need that. the The whole system is going to collapse if, if we continue destroying biodiversity like we are doing. So, um, yes, I think we have a moral obligation to protect it. And it's a moral obligation for ourselves and for future generations as well. Um, Because, yeah, uh, the current situation is not sustainable. And, I mean, we've got about 10 years to turn it around, really. Um, But I do, I, I think... So as you said, there's a lot more awareness and people are changing their actions now. I think the message is starting to get through to people. Um, and I just hope it happens yeah. fast yeah, very, enough. Yeah,
0: Very true. Very true. Final question, you know, Dr. Cliff, I don't want to hang up, but <laughs> I could talk sloths all day with you. Very important question <laughs> for us and our listeners. How can we help you in your efforts in the Sloth Conservation Foundation? <laughs>
1: what a great question (laughs) um so there's several things I mean it depends on what people are able to do so um obviously the most important thing for us to continue our projects especially after um 2020 and how difficult a year it's been for fundraising is if anyone is able to donate or support our work financially um then obviously that's a huge huge boost we do offer something on our website, which has been really, really popular, um, which is called Sponsor a Sloth Crossing. And what this is, is people can come on and just donate enough for to cover the raw materials for a sloth bridge. And what we will do with that is build a bridge in their name and we will actually install a little um, wooden plaque with their name on it underneath the bridge and whenever we get any footage from camera traps of animals using that wildlife bridge, they also get sent those updates as well. So it's a great way to get people involved in conservation and actually make a difference um, through your donation as well. So um, if anyone uh, thinks that that would be, make a good Christmas present for somebody or anything, then um, all the information's on our website. And, yeah, and if the, people want to get involved... By volunteering their skills, um, then that's also something that we're really, um, really open to. We're always looking for additional help. Um, so yeah, loads of stuff available on our website. So,
0: <laughs> I am. I'm going to push sponsor a sloth crossing. That is awesome, and it just made <laughs> me think of. Uh, Stephanie Arney, who uh, we've done some work with, she's done sponsor an African penguin nest. And I think it was like 50 or 60 US dollars. And you know, you would sponsor a actual nest that is out on the ground. So I am going to do our part and see if we can. We'll definitely come up with the funds to sponsor a sloth crossing. But for our listeners, please go to the website. It will be in the show. Yeah, it will be in the show notes. It's slothconservation.com very easy uh, website to to go to it's a beautiful website there's things you can go on there there's a carbon calculator we push that all the time uh Rebecca amazing work I I'm gonna check in with you again in a year or two and and see how you're doing (laughs) um or I'm coming down to Costa Rica and see how you're doing I just in awe of what you've done uh please keep it up I know from from Angie too uh she was in awe of the work you've done Uh, thank you so much for what you do and i know our listeners really appreciate it and we're going to do what we can to help you guys out and help the sloths
1: well thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you um and yeah thank you for for helping to raise awareness and generate support for our project so um hopefully we'll see you in costa rica soon